0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which we or he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that... We might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us the grace to finish this book and to go through it verse by verse and to glean and to mine all the things that are there, Lord. Even just at the surface level, Lord, we've learned so much. We know your word is so deep beyond what we could explore together collectively. But we thank you that we've got to go through it verse by verse We pray, Lord, that you would use these verses today as we look at this chapter for your unique purposes in our lives because you have unique plans for these verses related to each of us, Lord. So we pray that you'd help us to have yielded hearts to receive anything that you want to speak to us about, Lord. We pray that you would bring encouragement to those who are discouraged here this morning. I pray, Lord, that those that are struggling and that are very discouraged about their circumstances, that you'd lift their head this morning, that you'd give them your perspective, that you'd give them hope and peace and comfort, and thank you for the joy that you give us, Lord, that has nothing to do with our circumstances. So I pray, Lord, you'd bring encouragement today to those that are struggling. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us by your Spirit to comfort one another with the comfort that we've received from you already. So we pray you'd set this time aside for your holy use. We thank you for the privilege of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So exciting to finish a book! Um, I get excited every every time because it means something. We have accomplished something. You know, it's so rare today for people to actually go through a whole book of the Bible uh, in church. Unfortunately, it's only been three studies around that. I don't know, maybe four. I, I didn't count, but uh, it's been relatively quick uh, compared to when we went through the Book of Acts. It was. Almost 40 studies. Um, so this has been exciting because we've seen these these Thessalonians get encouraged by the Apostle Paul, especially as we're building upon what we've learned regarding First Thessalonians. And so Paul has been encouraging them. Again, they're new to the faith; they haven't been believers very long. Uh, they didn't have seasoned leaders. <laughs> they didn't have much of the New Testament at all uh, as new believers. They didn't have just the whole Bible, we have multiple Bibles, most of us, laying around. They didn't have that. And, and so they were also hitting this tremendous persecution, as we've seen, and hitting tremendous tribulation, as we've seen. So in chapter 1, we saw Paul just pour in pure encouragement. Just like he did in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Just poured out encouragement after encouragement to them. I'm sure it was like water to the soul for them. And then last week, we saw Paul deal with uh, correcting a very erroneous teaching regarding the rapture of the church. Uh, As you remember, in 1 Thessalonians, at the end of every chapter, he spoke about end times or the coming of the Lord and and so forth. So that was something that Paul believed was very important right from the beginning. He's reminding them in his first epistle about that which he had taught them when he was with them in person regarding the rapture and the second coming and all these things. Evidently, somebody had come in either by letter or by prophecy or in person. We're not sure. It doesn't seem like Paul knew exactly either. But they'd come in and they had said to them, you've missed the rapture. The fact that you're going through so much persecution and hardship and tribulation is evidence that now you are in the, the time which is referred to as the day of the Lord, the time of judgment that God's going to pour out on this earth for seven years. And so they were very disheartened regarding that. Not only were they going through persecution, but now they missed the rapture. I mean, talk about <laughs> discouragement. Talk about something that could just make your heart sink. And so he encouraged them. He said, there's two things that has to happen before the day of the Lord, before that seven-year time of tribulation, before God pours out his wrath upon this earth. There's two things. The departure has to happen, meaning the rapture. Then secondly, the, the, the uh the lawless one or the one that we refer to as the antichrist will come on the scene. And so he basically his point was in chapter 2 that those two things hasn't happened yet. So you're not in the day of the Lord. You're not in the seven-year tribulation. You haven't missed the rapture. So that's what we looked at last week. But this week Paul's going to correct bad behavior. Last week it was bad doctrine, now it's bad behavior. And he's correcting them because evidently there were those that were so excited about the rapture and so looking for the, thinking that Christ is going to come back at any moment that they just stopped working. They just stopped supplying for their own needs. And they just thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll just hunker down here and um, we'll eat other people's food. We have no problem with that. We're okay with them working, <laughs> uh, but we're not going to work. And so uh, he's going to deal with that. And he already had spoken to them about that. When he was with them in person, and he dealt with it as we'll see in his first epistle. Now, notice in verse one, Paul begins with a prayer request. He says, "Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it just as it is with you." Now, what's this word of the Lord runs swiftly? It reminded me of sometimes you in Sunday school you might see cartoons or Christian cartoons or books or curriculum that. Has the Bible as a as you know having legs and as arms you know back in the 80s there was uh, salty I remember salty uh, yeah a few hands salty I didn't I didn't know the Lord back then so I couldn't enjoy salty this this walking Psalm book it uh, wasn't a Bible but uh, I knew a guy in fact he was a pastor on staff at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa who was in those videos and I found out about that. And I'd give, I'd give him a hard time. And then I started telling everybody about how famous he was and how everyone needed to know that he was in those salty videos. And he didn't appreciate that very much. But anyway, I digress. So, <laughs> so I was thinking of this when I was looking at these verses. And the word of the Lord, run swiftly and be glorified. Paul is asking prayer, for prayer regarding his ministry. There wasn't a prayer list that Paul didn't want to be on. Every time that you see him talk to the believers, it seems like he's asking for prayer. And we can have this thinking that, you know, Paul is such a super Christian, this super saint. He doesn't need prayer. That wasn't the case at all. The Apostle Paul knew that he needed prayer. The key to his fruitfulness was the fact that so many believers were praying for him. Because every time he birthed a church, so to speak, and a new church came into existence, those believers had great affection for him, saw his sacrifice. For bringing, you know, what he received to bring the gospel to them, and then he had was let, he left them usually and was ripped out of their presence, so to speak, by persecution, and so they just they just stayed on he just stayed on everybody's prayer list, list there, and so he says, please pray for us. Now, we need to if Paul needed prayer, we need prayer, <laughs> that's for sure. So he is saying, please pray for us. And as I thought about how we ask for prayer or how we don't ask for prayer, I thought. You know, the times when I haven't asked for prayer or when I've uh, known others very well and saw that they weren't asking for prayer usually boils down to three possible options of why they're not asking for prayer in a pervasive way. It's usually they, they, they either don't have confidence in the power of prayer or they don't have needs or they don't care if their needs get met or the needs of others in their lives get met. Now, it's probably not the second one. Because we all know that we have incredible needs. And so, and it's probably not the third one because they care about if their needs get met. So often it has to do with just having a lack of confidence in prayer. And some of us who may be in that category or in that camp, so to speak, we may not realize we're in that camp. And sometimes we can recognize it by hearing ourselves say something like this. Well, my need that I have or the thing that I'm going through, it's really not that big of a deal. You know, that's just something that people go through. You know, that's just a normal thing in life. And so it's not really worth bringing up in a prayer meeting or putting on a prayer list or emailing to the church, uh, you know, uh, prayer email address. I'll just, it's okay. And, and see, that's really a shrouded way of saying that either God doesn't care about my requests or I don't have confidence that God will actually be concerned about this type of request or this need that I have. Because we may think it's too small it's or it's not important to him. And all of that is not true. God's called each one of us to be praying for one another. And, you know, I could. I can beat the drum all day long, and all of us would feel guilty about our prayer lives. I mean, we all fall short in some respect, and that's not my heart to make everyone feel guilty and walk in condemnation or anything like that. But the point is, God's always working to grow us in our prayer lives and to let people know about the needs that we have. And there isn't a need that's too small, and there isn't a need that's too great. And so God says, if 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 God is if God is interested in uh, the needs of anybody. He's in the he's interested in the needs of us. And so we need to let those things be known. We have prayer cards in the back. You can email your prayer request to prayer at ccmantica.com. We have our pre-service prayer. There's all kinds of ways that you can take advantage of the saints praying for you. Paul was going to take advantage of this opportunity. And and so we should as well, Now notice the reason why Paul prays is not related to his own material needs or comfort or he doesn't pray for a new horse or, you know, um, something related to his own personal affluence or anything like that. He's praying for influence. He's praying for ministry. He's praying for the fact that God's word through his life and the life of the team that that, that he's a part of would have incredible fruitfulness. And so he says, I want this to be something that it's on your lips and on your heart to be praying for us because we know the the power of prayer. When we were praying about starting this church and planning this church, and we knew that it was coming up, months ahead of time we started meeting regularly for prayer. And we prayed similarly to this request regarding God's word running swiftly and to be glorified. And it's, it's weird to think, well, how could, how could God's word be glorified? Aren't we supposed to glorify God and not his word? Well, in the, in the Psalms, it says that he magnifies his word above his own name. And we can't disconnect his word from him. Of course, we know that Jesus is the word. And, and so he's saying the influence of the word of God through our lives need to be, needs to be pervasive, needs to be influential. And the key to that is prayer. And so we knew that and we started praying that the word of the Lord that's, that's taught here would be uh, you know, so influential and in making such an impact that God would be glorified and his word would have the reputation that his word is enough. And we don't have to go, through, go through all the, the fads and all the teachings that are so popular, the man-centered teachings, the self-help things, and all these things that are not uh, in line with what Scripture says for us to be about and for us to, to teach and be a part of. And that that would never change because we know ourselves. We were praying, God, protect us from getting, you know, uh, creative or cute with, with what we teach and what's coming through, uh, you know, the, the ministries there at, at the future church that we are about to plant. And, and so we, that's always our prayer. We wouldn't leave God's word. We would stay close to, to, to you know, the faithfulness of, of teaching his word and all the ministries representing his word. And, and God has honored that prayer up to this point but we need to continue to pray for that. Now, notice in verse 2, the second thing for which he asks for prayer, deliverance from man. He says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. He says, unreasonable and wicked men. It's not just men, by the way. There's unreasonable women (laughs) that don't have faith as well. I mean, I just think of Jezebel in the Old Testament. Uh, But women can persecute too. So he's saying people, basically, unreasonable and wicked people that don't have faith. These are people that are not in submission to the obvious revelation of the Messiah and how he's revealed himself in the Old Testament to be uh, the, the, the Messiah that he's revealed in Christ. And that God painted this beautiful portrait in the Old Testament of the Messiah. So that when the Lord Jesus came, we wouldn't miss him. And so not all have faith, not all believe what his word says, and thus they are unreasonable and wicked. I love the fact that God's assessment of of those that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah is that they're unreasonable and that they're wicked. They, they point all these other, or they, they point to all these other names and designations about what they should be uh, represented by and, and what they should be called, but God says they're unreasonable and 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 wicked. And it cracks me up that they say that our faith is unreasonable. They, they believe that nothing exploded into something and caused all this obvious design there. But we're unreasonable? You know, they believe in UFOs. You know, and then you have these scientists that say if we received one sentence of language from, from outer space, we would know there's intelligent life out there. And then the DNA is so much like language and so much more complex than the most complex languages in the world. And, but no, no, that doesn't mean there's intelligence that are behind, you know, that that's behind the creation of man. No, 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 that's, that's unreasonable to think that. And it's just absolutely crazy. So Paul understood that praying for him and his ministry was very important. He needed deliverance. Now, he doesn't, he's not afraid to ask them to, for prayer from deliverance, even though they're in the middle of being persecuted themselves. He wasn't thinking that they were so sensitive to that fact he couldn't ask them for prayer. He said, no, no, no. You need to be praying for me. I'm praying for you that you're going to be delivered from this persecution and this tribulation, but you need to be praying for me. Sometimes we think when we're going through a trial that we just have to focus on ourselves. We just have to hunker down, shut everything out, and focus on ourselves. Paul is saying, don't focus just on yourself. Focus on the kingdom. Focus on other people. Pray for other people. Get your focus off yourself Get your focus on to God and to others. And Paul wasn't afraid to ask them to do that. And no doubt they did. Now notice in verse 3, he used a contrasting word there, but. He says, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So he's saying, you're different than those that are persecuting and those that are unreasonable and wicked. You're being sustained by the Lord because you know him, and God is going to be faithful and will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now, the word guard there is an interesting word. It means like a garrison. It means like a, a, a physical guard. You know, I mean, uh, a group of men that are, are military people that are guarding something. And he's praying that God would be faithful. Notice, God's faithful, and he's not saying that you're going to be faithful. He, Paul has his faith in the Lord regarding their spiritual uh, protection and their spiritual growth. And he says that God will establish despite persecution, despite bad doctrine that he that he dealt with last chapter, and despite the influence of bad behavior among you, that God's going to be faithful and he's going to set a garrison or military protection, so to speak, around your life and and, and the evil one, you don't have to be afraid of the evil one. Sometimes in the body of Christ we have an unhealthy view of the enemy we put too much focus on him the enemy this the enemy that the enemy you know and and before you know it all you're thinking about is the enemy and there's a demon behind every rock and and everything is the enemy's fault and before you know it you're you're giving so much attention to the enemy you're not even thinking about the Lord who's sovereign and who's infinitely bigger than the enemy and so God's called us to have a healthy view of of the enemy's influence in our lives, so much of what happens in our lives, you know, related to temptation and so forth. James says that when we're tempted, we're carried, carried, um, we're, we're carried over from tempted from without, from our own flesh, from our own sinful natures. Now, now, of course, the enemy is involved in that, but so much of it is that is us not putting off the old man and putting on the new man. So sometimes we put we give the enemy too much credit, and he's trying to encourage them in the context of persecution. Yes, you're getting persecuted. Yes, you're going through all these difficult things, but God's ultimately in control. His faithfulness is the one that's going to is the thing that's going to protect you. And you don't have to worry about the the onslaught of the enemy. You know, I think of Job how the enemy needed permission to do anything to Job, and he was on a leash there. And God isn't any less sovereign today than he was back in Job's day. I remember in in Luke chapter 22, where the Lord Jesus said to Peter, he said, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And then he tells him, I prayed that your faith wouldn't fail. But he did say the enemy has asked. That's asking permission there. And then we're told in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, this, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We're also told he's given us all authority over the enemy in Christ. So there, we have to recognize we're walking around with Christ's authority as a Christian. And as we walk in his ways and as we follow him and as we submit our lives to him, we can have confidence that he's working, even that which is meant for evil in our lives, for our good to further conform us to the image of Christ and that Satan is on a leash. And does that mean that we ignore him and neglect <laughs> What he's doing and so forth, not at all. There are times where God reveals to us through His Word and through other means what the enemy's up to in our lives or other someone else's life. We may be given a, we may have a, a discerning of spirits spiritual gift, and He reveals things to us. Paul said in one place, we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. So we're supposed to have a balanced view. We don't blame everything on him. We don't give him too much credit. We don't neglect the fact that he's working and he's trying to do things. We have to have a healthy view of that. And so Paul's encouragement to them going through difficulty is that God is going to be faithful. You need to see God first. He's the one that, that supremely should be in your focus. Even with all the persecution that we see in the book of Acts, they're always looking to, to God. The sovereign Lord, you are, you know, they would, they would rehearse those things and re- not remind him like as if he forgot, but they would declare it as a, as a statement of faith. That you are the sovereign, you rule everything, and, and you know they would ask to be refilled with the Spirit, and God would give them boldness and so forth, and he would, and, and, and he would compensate supernaturally for what the enemy was trying to accomplish uh, through wicked people. So he says there in verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Notice it's in the Lord. I have confidence in the Lord concerning you, not in you. Both that you do and will do the things we command you. So he uses this word command there at the end of verse 4. It's a military command. In fact, there's a lot of words in this passage that are military terms in the original language. We're celebrating, you know, Veterans Day this weekend. And, uh, you know, in, in, a, in an army or a navy or in some military, there's an order. God, you know, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. We've brought that in from our culture into the scriptures. There's a, the scriptures are all about a, a, an order. And there's leadership and so forth. Now there's not leadership. Or there shouldn't be leadership that are lording over people and abusing people and so forth. And the direction of ministry can't come to them. The direction of ministry has to come from them and from us to other people. But there still is an order. There still is an authority structure, and and, and Paul is re- referencing uh, that here. But he says, "I have confidence in the Lord." That's interesting. Because he doesn't say, I have confidence in you. (laughs) He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you are currently doing and you will in the future do all the things that we command. And again, that word command is a military term. It means something that a a superior officer says to an inferior officer in the chain of command. And he's going to use the word disorderly uh, coming up, and it means to uh, break rank. It means to get out of order, like when you're marching and someone breaks rank, they turn left when everyone else turns right, it's obvious. And so he's going to use that term to describe people getting out of order in the sense of where the, the God is leading the church, the God's army related to his kind of military there. We're told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's why Paul is saying we have confidence in the Lord. Any true believer that has the Holy Spirit living inside of him or her, that's been born again, has had that spiritual birth, they have a desire to please the Lord. God puts that in them by his Holy Spirit. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have two opposing natures as we come to know the Lord. We already have the sinful nature that we retain that. I wish it went away when we came to know the Lord, but it doesn't. And then when we receive Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit who makes our dead spirit alive and he gives us this desire to follow Christ and to do what's right. So now we have these competing natures and whatever one I yield to and feed is going to win over the other. It's just Christianity 101. It doesn't matter if we've known the Lord for 30, 40 years. Whatever we feed is going to win out over the other and we have to feed that, uh, that, that spirit every single day to have that spiritual life and vitality. The Lord Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we feed on him spiritually every single day. And so Paul knows that, and that's why he says, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. And as we submit to the authority that God has placed in our lives, we're going to grow spiritually. And as we grow spiritually, we are further going to submit to the, to the authorities that God has placed in our lives for our good. And so as we cooperate with how God has set things up, then we grow exponentially. And that's what God has in mind for us. Now he begins to pray in verse 5. I love this. Notice in verse 5 he says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. And what's interesting about verse 5 is that the word direct there means to set a course that is obstacle-free. I remember in junior high, Prescott Junior High in Modesto, uh, many years ago, we had these obstacle courses, and we just thought they were so fun. The more obstacles they put before us, the better. Mud, you know, monkey bars, and rolling around, and doing all these things. We just absolutely loved it. But if they took away all those obstacles and we'd have a clear shot to the goal of the the ending, you know, the finish line, we would have got there so much faster if those obstacles weren't in the way. So if they would have set another course for us that's obstacle-free, then we would have got to our destination faster. That's the word picture here. What what God is saying is that he's praying that the Lord is creating a path that's obstacle-free for them to receive the love of God and for them to receive the patience of Christ. And they needed both to be able to get through what they were going through. And so sometimes we have these obstacles that are already there. You know, we sometimes have a hard time receiving God's love. Maybe our background, maybe how we've been treated growing up, and the things we had to deal with, and, and we are attaching shame to our lives, and we, we, it's hard for us to accept love from people, and, and sometimes it's hard for us to accept love from God. And God wants to break through that. He wants to remove those obstacles so that we can receive that unconditional love. And that will do a work in our hearts that is is in line with him bringing us to the destination uh, that he has for each one of us, the plan that he has for each one of us. Or we could be upset about what he's allowed into our lives. We could be frustrated. Why did you allow that? You didn't have to allow that in my life. Other people that I know didn't have to have that allowed in their life. How, do you, how come you allowed something? And so because of that, we can think that God doesn't love us or doesn't care and so forth. And so we could hold him away at a, at a quote, healthy distance. There's no healthy distance with the Lord. We need to be as close to him as possible. So he says, may, the, may God remove the obstacles or remove uh, anything that gets in the way of you receiving the love of God and, in, and the patience of Christ. Who needed patience more than Christ? And that word patience is endurance. And you can read, you know, Hebrews chapter twelve, and the picture of the marathon, and and him calling us to run the race that God has set before us. Looking unto Jesus, and the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the, the shame. We were the joy that was set before him to save us. But he had a focal point there, like any marathon runner does, looking at ahead, and he was looking at at us and what he would do after he died for us on the cross in our lives. And so he says, I want you to have the love of God, and he's praying for them, and the patience of Christ to go through this incredible persecution and affliction that you're going through. Now, Paul gets to the part where he corrects his bad behavior in verses 6 through 15, and he says in verse 6, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition of which he received from us. And here's the problem again. They're thinking the rapture's coming at any time and they're not working. They're just living off of other people there and and they're idle. And Paul is saying that you never can be so spiritual regarding waiting for the rapture that you get to be lazy. That's not a measure of spirituality. James is going to talk about later on that if you don't provide for your own family, they're worse than an unbeliever. And sometimes people can say, I'm so spiritual that I don't need to, 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 I don't need to condescend to this, this secular work and, and be engaged in all those things. I'm more spiritual than that. Paul says, no, you're not. You're not spiritual at all. You're disorderly. And that word is another military word, falling out of rank. Now, Paul has been dealing with this for a while. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. Wow, he said, "Mind your own business." Anytime you say, say to someone, "Mind your own business," you can say, "I'm quoting the scriptures." You know, I'm sorry, but but God says it to us. Mind your own. I'd recommend being spirit directed related to that. But God's not afraid to say that. He said it to uh, Peter when Peter was saying, "What about him?" Regarding the Apostle John after he got done speaking about how Peter would die, and he says, "You." You, you leave that to me. If I will for him to be alive till the end, you know, what is that to you? So God's not afraid to say, mind your own business. But he says, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, past tense, as we commanded you. This is in his first epistle. So this was already happening when he was with them in Thessalonica, when he started teaching them about the rapture and the end times and all that. They, they immediately right then was starting, they're starting to be tempted to be idle. He later said in the, in the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, verse 14, he said, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. And again, that's the same word here for falling out of rank. Warn those who are unruly. That's what was, It was already happening back then. So Paul is kind of, he's kind of ratching it up to another level. Because we can see this withdraw, and that's what he tells them to do, to withdraw from these people. When they don't listen, note them and withdraw from them that can kind of appear a little harsh wow but this isn't the first time he's dealing with this he spoke to them in person then he wrote a letter regarding that and told them to warn those people they're still doing it so then he has to take it to another level God doesn't like having to take things to another level but he will if you force him to and if I force him to so he says now I want you to withdraw and so what's important for us to know this isn't disfellowshipping this isn't kicking him out of the church Uh, There there is a time for that. Paul talks about that in other places where there's sinful behavior and willful disobedience to where it's affecting the body. There is a place for that. That's not what he's doing here. He's saying withdraw from them so that they can't be dependent upon you. You remove your capacity to enable them in their laziness and don't feed them anymore in that sense. And so they can't circumvent the process that God's trying to bring them through to get them to be uh, hardworking and responsible. And I'm sure they they would get accused of not being loving. Oh, you claim to be a believer and you're withdrawing from me. How dare you? You're saying you're a Christian. How is that agape love and all this stuff? God's not afraid to come in and say, do the hard thing, show the hard love, and I will work in that situation. God knows what's best for them. Now, he says in verse 7 and 8 that... They need to remember his past example with respect to his work ethic. He says, "For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly; same word, among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you." He says, "I'm not asking you to do anything you didn't see us do. We're not. Have, we don't have a separate set of rules. Sometimes you see." clergy have a different set of rules for things because they're clergy. They don't have to do certain things. God doesn't, he's not into that. He says, you need to be an example. And so he's saying, you need to work hard. And Paul worked hard. He was a rabbi and he worked hard his whole life. He was a tent maker. You know, being Jewish, especially, they had a saying that if you don't teach your son a trade, you've taught them to beg and you taught them to steal. And so that was something that was very important. So he was raised in that. He, he was raised making tents. So Paul's schedule was this. They, they would, he would work during the morning and he'd work hard making tents. And then in the afternoon, they would take four or five hours off in that culture in the heat of the day. And then they'd come back and they work in the evening and finish up around nine or ten in the evening. He would use that time though in the afternoon when it was hot to teach and to pour into people. So he worked all morning and then he would work in the afternoon by teaching and giving and giving and giving. And then he'd come back and work in the evening and he just worked hard. And he laid that example out for them to see. And he's going to get into the fact he didn't have to do that, but he did it as an example. And that's what he wanted them to follow. And he says in verse 9, not because we did not, do not have authority. He had authority as an apostle. Many places he talks about not muzzling the ox. Let, you know, In other words, the, the ox had, was free when he, when he helped with the farming to eat from some of the grain that he helped uh, farm. And he says, don't muzzle the ox related to uh, the leaders. They have, they have the right to receive from the ministry and so forth. He had the authority, but he wanted to be an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So again, he commanded Already. This is something that he had to say when he was with them in person. And then he wrote a letter reinforcing it, and now he's saying it again. And notice at the end of verse 10, he says, If anyone will not work, neither shall eat. Notice he doesn't say if they cannot work, they will not eat. This is talking about people who can work, but they choose not to because they're so spiritual that they're waiting for the rapture and all these other things. It's not talking about the person that wants to work and can't find a job. Or a person that physically can 't work because of certain circumstances that they just can 't find work and so forth they can 't physically accomplish uh, you know a vocation or whatever that 's a whole nother set of circumstances he 's talking about people that can work who choose not to that 's why he says if he will not work, neither shall he eat God's called us to be industrious it 's not unspiritual to work hard you know it 's amazing how people can have that mindset, even leaders. You know, they're, they're out there playing golf all the time and just goofing off and not being accountable, and that should never be. They should be working really hard to be an example. You know, I work six days a week. I have one day off, and oftentimes I don't even get that day off. And I'm not saying that to say, look at me. I'm saying that it's, ministry is hard. It's sacrifice. And how can I ask you to sacrifice and to be obedient to what God's word says and to work hard and serve and give your life away and all those things, if I'm not willing to do it, I have to lead by example. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. God's all about work. He's been working. He's the example. Even back in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, people say, oh, that working, that became came because of the fall. No, they were tending that garden before. And even in the millennium, it says we're going to be serving him. He calls us servants in the context of heaven and so forth. We're going to be serving in heaven. God's not afraid of work. He's very industrious, and he's not afraid to require people to work, even in the context of being helped. In the Old Testament, he had the, the law where uh, you couldn't go back and, and harvest a second time, and you had to leave the corners of your field not harvested so that people could come and get food, the the poor. But he didn't just hand it to the poor. They had to come and work for it. So it wasn't just something that they did and got, you know, uh, something that was free without any effort, because it, there's dignity in working hard. They could come and say, I worked for this food. They went out and gathered it. Even when he supplied manna to the, to the people, they had to come and bend down and sweep it up. And there was procedure related to that when he supplied for them in the wilderness for 40 years. It wasn't, didn't just make it appear in a glass jar on their counter. They had to, to work for it. And so being lazy is not being spiritual. You remember that Lord Jesus, when he was baptized, the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What's interesting is that the tense there is saying that this is my son in whom I am already well pleased. And in part, that, was, that occurred because the Lord Jesus was a good hard worker as a carpenter. I'm sure if you went into his shop, it wasn't a mess, and it, he wasn't slothful, and he wasn't trying to get, a, get away with not working. He was a very hard worker, all the way up, all the way through his uh, public ministry. Now, he says in verse 11, specifically the charge, he says, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, Is that word again this means falling out of rank, not working at all, but are busybodies. When we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, he gives us a lot of time and, you know, to do things that we shouldn't do. When we're not working, we're not occupying till he comes. Jesus said, occupy till I come. He didn't say hang out in a lazy chair and lazy boy chair and eat bonbons and play video games and goof offs in your life. He said, occupy, be about my business. And when we're not about his business, it gives us a lot of time to get into trouble. You know, the old saying that, that uh, idle minds and idle hands are the devil's workshop. That's still true. There's a lot of wasted time that is the breeding ground, so to speak, or the little petri dish for sin and, and creates that environment. So we should be busy working hard. And it even means modeling that for our kids and training them up. So often there's parents that are afraid to make their kids work hard because we're so afraid that we're going to cause damage to them if we cause them to overwork somehow. CPS is going to be knocking on our door, you know, and hey, you're you're, you're kind of a slave driver. What are you doing? And we're afraid to have them work hard. God wants us to train them up to where, yes, it's difficult. We don't have to pay them money every time they do something around the house. Just work, you know, learn, establish in them a a very good work ethic. Just that alone will cause them to be an amazing salt and light, you know, to, to be salt and light out in this world. Because this world's getting the opposite, more and more and more. And next he's going to say, you know, basically shut up, get a job and get your own food. That's really my, you know, the, 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 the reality of it in verse 12, he says, now those who are, are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. I mean, that's, that's a little bit different of a translation, what I said, um, but really that's what he's saying. Be quiet, work hard, and eat your own food. I remember when I was a kid, I'd go over to my friend's houses and I'd just open up cupboards, and I would just eat those Oreos and I'd open up. I mean, in fact, I did <laughs> Vicki right here. She's here uh, that I've known for since I was a teenager. I used to go into her kitchen and raid her house of food, you know, until, eat your own food, Pat. You know, I heard that. You know, and he's saying, do that in general for your life. Take responsibility for your life and, and work hard. But he says in verse 13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, we can separate this and try to divorce it from the main context, which is working and supplying for your needs, but we can't. The doing good there in verse 13 is not talking about supremely our works among, you know, good works and being loving and, you know, all that in in the context of his people. He's saying doing good is working hard and being responsible. That's, That's the context. But see, it was affecting those that were working hard by seeing others be lazy. It was affecting, there's nothing more discouraging if you're a hard worker than seeing people live in, a, in an ongoing way, being lazy and living off other people. It's very discouraging. So he's saying, do not grow weary in doing what's right and working hard. You that are working hard and not being so spiritual that you're, you're, you're living off other people because you're waiting for the rapture, don't get discouraged That you're that, uh, in that context. Be encouraged. You're doing what's right. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you're working hard, you're doing what's right, You're where God has you. Don't grow weary in that. And I don't believe in in burnout. I don't. I believe you can be weary in, uh, in your work, but not weary from your work. I mean, you can get tired of working in the sense of being exhausted. But if you're really doing what God's called you to do, you should be able to do that in an ongoing way. I'm not talking about not having vacations or anything. I'm just saying in an ongoing way, you should be able to serve and never get burned out. I don't believe in burnout. Because if you're doing what God's called you to do, he's going to give you the grace and the power to do what he's called you to do. So he's going to give you everything that you need. So if you're burned out, you're either doing it in his strength, or in your own strength, or not in his strength, or you're doing something he hasn't called you to do. Very simple. I don't think that uh, there's anything more complex about it. Uh, we have to do what God has called us to do. That's why we don't pressure people to do what is going on here. We want people to be doing it in because they're called to do it and they're gifted to do it and they're doing it in his strength because if they're not called to do it, there won't be any grace for it from, from the Lord. And then it'll be striving and it'll be uh, not a blessing to the Lord. So that's, that's what we try to do around here. Verse 14, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. So if a person is irresponsible, they can work, but they choose not to, and they're living off other people, we're supposed to do two things. First of all, we're supposed to admonish them, which means to warn them. Oh, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I want everyone to like me. I'm never going to open my mouth related to that. That's not what God says right here. Verse 15 says, you are to, in a spirit-directed, loving, appropriate, tactful way, warn them. That that's not God's plan for their life. That includes our kids. If our kids are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, we need to warn them. We need to warn them of what's happening in their life and what the repercussions of their decision-making are. But also, we're supposed to, to withdraw from them, not keep company with them. And, and this is the, the, the goal is not to hurt them. That's not God's intent here. He says that they may be ashamed. Why? so that they could just be ashamed for the rest of their life and just live a horrible life? No. That they'll come to their senses and they'll realize that I can't do this. I can't continuously be non-productive and, and, and have it be okay. And then it also removes their, their 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 ability to mooch off of us or to to get supplied from us their needs and so forth when God wants to use that. So often the the hard, difficult, humbling thing of working hard and not getting what we think we should have regarding our job. Sometimes we, God asks us to do things that we think are below us. He says, you're a servant. There's nothing, there should be nothing that's below you. But so often with our kids or with other people, oh, that's below me. I'm not going to take that job. I'm not, you know, That's the very mechanism that he wants to use or the catalyst he wants to use to make us into the person he's called us to be. And as parents, sometimes we can want to protect our kids from that. Oh, I don't want my kid to work there. No way, my I'm, I'm, kid's too good for that. Or I don't, That'll cause them too much pain. No, that's going to probably be used by the Lord to build character in them. I had 20 jobs before I was 20, before I got saved. Didn't have any preparation for adult life. And I had to work horrible jobs. You can ask Sandy at the horrible jobs that I had. I should write a book on them. And it was incredibly painful. But through that, he used that in my life to, for me to be more and more responsible so he could entrust me with more and more and more. There was no one to protect me from that. There was no parent to protect me from, from trying to you know, go through those difficult times. But God used that, and I'm thankful there was no one that protected me from that. So often, the decisions we make, is, and I'm not speaking as Mr. Experience as a parent, but so often we make decisions regarding our kids, and it's more about what we get protected from in terms of what we get to experience instead of what's best for them. So maybe that's a word for someone here this morning specifically about a current situation. So Paul says, if you see someone ignore what we've said, we've asked you to warn them. Now we're saying withdraw and they don't, they, they don't obey. Note that person, withdraw from them and warn them. So that's the correction he gives. Now he closes in verses 16 through 18. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. Again, they're going through persecution. They're going through tribulation. They wanted peace. They needed peace. And he says, may God give you all that peace that that you need that surpasses all understanding and that the Lord be with you all. Then he says, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. You remember that he said, if any teaching comes to you by spirit or by word or epistle that contradicts what we've already said to you, don't listen to it. And so at the end of every letter, he, he It appears that he authenticated the letter by signing in his own name. And, and I think it's in Galatians. He says, see with what large letters I use in writing what I'm writing because he might likely had an eye disease or something and he couldn't see very well. And, and so he, they knew that his uh, specific signature would authenticate the letter, and he wants them to have confidence that this is the letter that I'm writing, not some other thing that you got that said that the rapture has already happened. This is the letter, and this is what I use to authenticate every letter. Then he closes with grace, which is appropriate. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He begins with grace, chapter 1, verse 2. Begins with the great, you know, grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. He ends with grace. Usually they're like bookends in his epistles. Begins with grace, ends with grace, because it's all grace from beginning to end. Everything that they're going through, the encouragement that they're receiving, they're, they're, the correction that they're receiving is all an extension of God's grace. Their ability to obey what he's saying is it has its source in his grace, and he wants that to be extended to them and have, have them be you know, living and obeying and functioning with the confidence that God's going to give them all the grace that they need. So as we close here, the admonishment to work hard, not just in our jobs, every place that God has placed us. There's nothing that is more spiritual than hard work, and there's nothing more spiritual in life regarding what you're doing for the Lord Uh, than just obeying what he says and what he's placed before you. What I do isn't more spiritual than what you do. It's just as spiritual. Whatever God has called us to is, is the most spiritual thing that we can do. But he's called us to do it well. He's called us to work hard, to sacrifice, and that will keep us out of a lot of trouble. He knows that. We need to be busy about his business, but not in our own strength, in his strength, and by his power, and by his grace. It's been great to study this This book, looking forward to 1 Timothy, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your your word. We thank you that there's so much there. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be the hardest working people in this world. Lord, not for our glory, but for your glory. We pray, Lord, that you would use these verses, however you choose, in our lives, Lord, and and that you'd bring us back to these things. Lord, make this book of 2 Thessalonians an old friend to us that we could come back and be encouraged, Lord, in, in all the things you want to speak to us about regarding these, these chapters, Lord. We thank you for Paul's sacrifice in writing them. And we pray, Lord, that you would use these verses in our lives just as much as you ever used them in the, the Thessalonian church or your, the lives of your people all through the ages. We thank you for the privilege of studying it together as a family. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.